Hello Church, great to be with you again today. And this is the first week of our walking through Ephesians. Um, over the next seven weeks, we're going to walk through the book of Ephesians. We'll take a chapter at a time. And this week, this first week, is very much an introduction. I'll give you a brief history of the town of Ephesus. We'll talk about how Paul made his way there before we step through the book of Ephesians, just at a high level, understanding its structure and what Paul was really trying to convey. And then each week, we'll take a chapter at a time. We'll look at the main theme of that chapter uh, and we'll step you through it. And we'll ask the question, well, so what? So what? We hope you will enjoy this as we study um, Ephesians together and as we learn from it. All our scriptures will be of the new international version, the UK edition, and we hope you can follow along. Have your Bible at the ready, whether or not it's a paper Bible or whether or not it's on your phone or on your tablet. So let's have a look. Let's give a bit of background to uh, the city of Ephesus. So Ephesus was a port city and Paul first visits there very briefly in AD 53 and it, it, it was situated in now what is modern day Turkey. The city was once considered the most important trading centre in the Mediterranean region. It would have huge merchant ships dock and bring their wares and their wealth and their gold and people. It was a very diverse city of many different cultures and many different backgrounds. However, over, over time, the harbour began to silt up. And if you look in, in the history books, there's evidence of a huge Roman um, project to try and keep the harbour clear and keep it open. And this went over a number of years, but for whatever reason, it was not successful. And at a point, the Romans ceased to try and hold back all of this silt. And over a number of years, it began to silt up. And slowly and slowly, the city got further and further away from the shore until it was impossible for ships to dock. And we, without that where, we, without the merchants coming through, slowly people moved away and the city soon became, became deserted. As a result, though, nobody has rebuilt on top of it. So there is a wealth of archaeology and understanding that we can glean from, from, from that, that can give us huge insight into the people who lived there at their time. Thinking about when Paul and Timothy, who went on to leave the church at Ephesus, would have been there, the population would have been around 56,000. If you study and research it yourself, there was some suggestion for quite some time that it could have been up to a quarter of a million. But because they understand where the city walls laid and they know the expanse of the, the city, they just don't feel that uh, the city could have supported that level of population. And now the general consensus that 56,000 between around there is probably about right. However, it's still the third or fourth largest city in Rome. This is of some stature. This is of some importance. And as I said, its population would have been about many diverse cultures and backgrounds. And as Paul and Timothy would have walked the streets, they could not have escaped some of the main buildings that led into the whole culture. There was a huge, great theatre that would have dominated the, the, 
the landscape right in the heart of the city. At its height, it's seated around 24,000 people. Gosh, if you think about it, almost half of the city could have gone along at once and enjoyed what was going on. Uh, the, the top seat would have been 100 feet in the air, they estimate. And, and Paul or Timothy could not have escaped it. It was considered the largest theatre in the world at the time of Paul. Many of you will know that Ephesus was a hugely religious place and the main religion being the worship of the goddess Artemis or the Romans would call her Diana. And that worship played a real central role in the life of the city during this time. Paul or Timothy could not have missed the temple again. It was one of the seven wonders of the world at that time and lay just outside of the city. It would have been a huge hub of activity where things were sold and brought. We know from the archaeologists that the silversmiths had a huge standing. There are plaques um, that give a nod to the silversmith guild in how they had helped the temple being maintained um, and it was first refound in 1863 and they were able to see the expanse of the uh, of the foundations and just get a real sense of the size of this and even today there is still a single column that stands that just gives us a sense of the size and scope we know from the book of Acts that the worship of Artemis was so significant that in Acts 19, chapter, uh, verse 24 and 25, we have the silversmith Demetrius, who is so concerned that um, the sale of his statues of Artemis is waning, that he incites a riot. He stirs up the people against what's happening. He even tells us in Acts that it's not just happening in Ephesus. But it's happening in the whole region of Asia. Just stop and think. The power of the gospel that was preached at that time called, began to cause such a cultural shift that people stopped buying, that people changed their buying habits. So much that it got such a concern. And Demetrius stirs up a big crowd and, and they all make their way to the theatre. And they're there and they're chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The book of Acts tells us that some of this was for a number of hours. But people didn't really know why they were there and they were scratching their heads and they soon dispersed. But just imagine how the impact of the gospel has on culture. I want to see that in our city in our locality, in our home, that as we preach the gospel, it's tangibly seen in the difference, the way people live their lives. I remember the Welsh revivals, how um, the public houses were empty because there'd been a change in people's behaviour. Wow. We also read that it had changed so much earlier on in the book of Acts, in chapter 19, verse 18. We had... Um, a great number of people coming to know the Lord. They were confessing all their sins and they were disclosing their practices. I'm doing this. I've done this. They were burning their books of magic. Wow. So as we look at the, uh, the book of Acts, what happened in Ephesus? Well, plenty. 
in Ephesus, we read that Paul took Priscilla and Aquila and left them there. Acts verse uh, Acts chapter 18. It was in Ephesus that Apollos was discipled and trained. Acts 18, 24 to 27. It was in if it was in Ephesus that the sick were healed by placing Paul's old handkerchiefs and aprons on people. Acts chapter 19. It was in Ephesus that the sons uh, that the seven sons of Sceva lost a fight with a demon possessed man. It was in Ephesus that, as we said, a massive pile of magic books were burned. It was in Ephesus that Demetrius started a massive uproar and thousands protested at the declining influence of Artemis and the decline in the trade of silver idols because of the growth of the gospel and the growth of a church. Gosh, we have an awful lot going on at Ephesus. If we read through, we can see in Acts 20 that Paul stayed there for around three, three and a half years. He strengthened, he challenged, he even warned the church greatly before leaving and moving on. Eight years later, Paul finally makes it to Rome, but not in the way I think he'd realised. He's under house arrest he's in prison in a home while a guard is watching him night and day and it's during this time Paul writes a number of letters uh, the prison letters that have become several epistles um, in our New Testament and it's at this time that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus so what do we know about the church? Well, quite a lot, actually. We've got a lot of information in the book of Acts, chapter 18 through to 21. We have the book of Ephesians itself, where Paul is clearly writing to a congregation, to a community of believers he knows. And they are, of course, the first church named in the book of Revelation, those who have lost their first love. Well, we don't know the specifics of their the church. What we can be sure of just by the demographic was it was a very diverse cultural church and a, and a cultural city as well. As a busy port, you can imagine how people from different lands and cultures would arrive and choose to make their home in Ephesus. And we can know that the church had lots of different people in there we can imagine it had romans who came from every spectrum of the social structure both high and low there were slaves household masters husbands and wives greek macedonians jews merchants carpenters silversmiths there were people from all walks of life that had come to know Christ and had formed this community of believers. Only church really does that. Only the gospel brings so many people together from diverse backgrounds and calls them a new people and seeks for them to get along as one. So as we turn to the epistle of the Ephesians, Ephesians really unmasks the mystery of the church like no other so Paul writes that God has unveiled all things no sorry God has unified 
all things in Christ, Ephesians chapter one. I mean, imagine that he's writing to this diverse community and he's saying that God unifies you all, all of you in Christ. And that it was God's plan for the church, the ecclesia, to form a body to express Christ's fullness on the earth. Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. And that this unified people, this one people, Jew and Gentile, were to come together on the earth. It's the new humanity, humanity 2.0, that we've been talking a lot about recently. You can see that in Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul takes great pains to talk about the unity that this new humanity should have in the spirit through the uniting bond of Christ through peace. Chapters four, uh, verse two. A thread, an ongoing thread through the book is that Jesus's life, death and resurrection qualified him and only him to be the true king of heaven and earth. The way and and that the way that people outside of the church would see this kingdom displayed on earth was through a unified people called the Ecclesia, called this new humanity. I mean, do you get that? Jesus is the only one qualified to be the king of heaven and earth. And the way that people would see this kingdom experienced and displayed is through you and I being unified as one, as the people of God. This new humanity, it excites me. It excites me. So let's jump into their book. It's really cool how we just work through this overlay and um, the bible project has done a short film on the book of ephesians and they and they go through the structure really well we'll pop the link to that video in the comments below and i've taken much of what i'm going to work through now just just from that video so please do take some time to watch that because they do it ever so well so the book of ephesians is split into two halves Chapters one through three, Paul is setting the scene. He's giving the story of the gospel. It's fully Christ centered. Christ was in all and through all and God placed him. He talks about how God chose you and I in Jesus, in Christ, from the foundation of the world and that we're adopted as sons and daughters by Jesus. It is through Jesus we have our redemption and our forgiveness. Paul wants to make clear that we that we have everything because of the work of Christ in our lives. He talks about how it was always been God's plan to choose and bless a covenant people. First through Abraham, he talks about he's really taken us through the first through few chapters of Genesis, but now even more so through Jesus as adopted sons and daughters. And it was God's plan to have a huge family of restored humans who who would be in this world and who others would see his kingdom through. It is so cool. It is so cool. Paul goes on in chapter two and he starts to pad out some of the ideas we see in chapter one. He reminds us 
that before we knew God, we were lost, that we may have been physically alive, but we were spiritually dead. And he talks about God's grace of saving us and inviting us into a new family. He talks about how these two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, become one. I know I keep going on about it, but it is so important. He's made us one and we're a new humanity. We're a community of believers. We're citizens of heaven and we're to experience and and represent the living God on this earth. I get excited. I get excited. Chapter three, Paul is just thanking God that he's had this opportunity to see this new community, this this new humanity work. And even though he's in heaven, sorry, even though he's in prison, he's writing from prison, not heaven. Um, even though he's in heaven, he has this chance to be a part of seeing this new community, this new humanity grow and be grafted in to the covenant people of Abraham and of Jesus. It is so exciting. I love it. And then there's a hinge point. So as we move into the second half and the second section, now we we wanted to go with the NIV translation because we felt that that was the one most broadly read. And the latest translation kind of misses this word out that I'm about to talk about. Most most translations start chapter four with either the word therefore or so. And for me, that's caused kind of like a hinge verse as Paul goes from one section outlaying the gospel, outlaying what Jesus did for us to a therefore or so. So what's the point? You've just heard all about Christ done. Therefore, what should we do? And in the latest translation of the NIV, it's missing. How frustrating. But if you look at the New King James Version, the NRSV, the New American Standard, uh, the ESV, even even the further back and the earlier translations of the NIV, there's usually therefore or so. Therefore this. So this. So here we go in chapter four. Paul now starts challenging the reader to respond to what the gospel story is saying and how they should work it and live it out in their own lives and in their own story. It's the so what? Christ, God did all of this, so what? Therefore, and it starts to talk about that this is how we are supposed to live. That Chapter four starts to talk about how the everyday life, how the everyday Christian should walk and have their being. And here in chapter four, Paul emphasizes that the church is one. Unity is incredibly powerful and strong. In the Old Testament, unity of heart and mind was so strong in the Tower of Babel that God himself says, is there nothing that man cannot do? And therefore he confuses their minds and their language. Unity in Christ, unity with one another in Christ paves the way for an incredible work of God in our lives. And Paul is emphasizing that the church is one, one in body, unified by one spirit, and that we are called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father over all. Ephesians 4, 
uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 and 6. Paul talks about there being lots of, he then moves on. He talks about there being lots of different types of people, lots of different gifted people in the church that is placed there to build up one another, to build up the church for the work of the ministry. And while they might be different, they're all doing this through Christ Jesus as our Lord. The rest of the chapter, Paul begins to unpack what this new humanity should look like. Not lying, but telling truth. Not holding on to anger, but responding in peace. This continues throughout the chapter. And I love it because it's difficult, isn't it? Because you could almost say that this is a list and we kind of see a list and it becomes about a tick list of things to do. But he's trying to experience God did all of this. Therefore, we walk differently. And a sign of we walking differently, we don't lie. We tell the truth. We don't get drunk, but we live by the spirit. We're not angry, but we walk out in peace. And we have to not see it as a list of things to do, but people who we are. And we aspire to be those things because Christ was those things. It's not a checklist. It's not a things, it's not a list of things to do and a list of things to walk through. Paul um it then moves it through into chapter five and he keeps going, he keeps talking about how how some people are this, but as followers of Jesus. We're this. And he concludes this part about saying we are also not drunk. We don't get drunk. It can be a challenge for today's culture where alcohol takes such a central role. And it is about managing that well and knowing our limits and knowing our boundaries. But as followers of Jesus, we don't get drunk. Instead, we get filled with the true, authentic spirit of Jesus. And then the second half of chapter five, Paul expands on this and he talks about that there are signs of what it looks like to be filled with the spirit and have the spirit of God within us. Interestingly, he starts with singing. Very interesting at this time, isn't it? He talks about how we sing first to God. We sing to him. Our hearts sing our song to God. And then we sing also to one another. And, you know, if you look rightly, we can still do that. There are settings where it's simply not wise, but there are areas where we still can. He then says, actually, it's really interesting. A good sign of being filled with the spirit is being thankful for everything. How easy sometimes is it to focus on what we haven't got? Or what we can't do. Again, very apt at this time. And yet Paul says a sign of being filled by the spirit is being thankful for everything. Interestingly, again, he says a sign of being filled by the spirit is you submit to one another. Within Christ as a fellowship, as a community of believers, we see one another. Every one of us as better than ourselves. Because there's no class divide. Remember Paul's writing to this hugely diverse church that has all sorts of different people up and down the social spectrum. 
middle class, lower class, upper class, people from different cultures. And he says, we are one together in Christ. Submit to one another. Because in the kingdom of God, there's no class system. It's brother and sister of God. In the kingdom of God, there's no race. We're all citizens of heaven. Hugely applicable for this time. So we embrace people because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't seek and judge them and decide, well, you're not like us. We are middle class Christians. We are upper class Christians. There's no such thing. There's one body and one God. And we're all fellow citizens of heaven in Christ. So Paul then starts a sign of being filled with the spirit is that we submit to one another. Paul then starts to expand on this point and he starts to unpack what it looks like in Christian marriage. How 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 wives are to trust their husbands and to submit and allow their husbands to take responsibility for them. Hugely controversial words in this time. And yet we go on and says, however, the husbands are to uh, are to die for their wives, to lay down their lives for their wives. And how we get this beautiful image of submitting to one another and how in this role, uh, the wife um, imitates the church and the husband imitates Christ. And it shows a, an indication how Christ is to interact with his church. And then Paul goes on and unpacks it further. He talks the same as to how that looks like between the relationship with parents and their children. And he expands it even further to how that also works out within the relationship between slaves and masters and how in the kingdom of God, it looks different. There's this mutual submitting to one another and how it looks different in different contexts and different purposes. But it's all the same in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. And finally, we come on to chapter six, where Paul begins to talk to us about the reality of spiritual evil who will at every turn seek to undermine this new humanity and pull them off track at every turn. Gosh, in my experience and in my viewpoint, he's doing that so often now. He's trying to um, divert and detract the church. And sometimes he's getting us focused on the wrong things and he's just rubbing his hands. And Paul is reminding the church at Ephesus that there is a spiritual battle out there and they will seek to pull you off track at every opportunity. That there's powers and principalities, there's the demonic and there's demons and it's real. And we believe that in Solihull Christian Fellowship. There is a spiritual realm where the um, hosts of heaven, the angelic hosts of heaven are, and as well, the hordes of Satan and demons. But Paul reminds us, doesn't he, that we can overcome by putting on the armour of God. And he says, he, he, he says this, and stand. 
to stand your ground before the evil one. Do you know, church, that that is still relevant today? 2,000 years later, when we walk in the armour of God, we can stand, not only stand, but we can stand firm against anything. Amen. And that is where we're going to go through over the next six weeks. We're going to traverse a chapter a week. Yeah, it'll be a lot to pack in. It'll be a lot to go through. We'll talk about that theme. And we want to ask the question, the so what? And we want to get you thinking and talking. There'll be an opportunity to put things in the comments as we issue this on YouTube every Thursday, Thursday afternoon. And it will be there for you to watch at your own time. And sometimes you don't need to watch it. You can have it on in the background as you're pottering around or you can sit with your Bible open. You can listen and you can follow as we just as we just study and and just eat the word of God together. Church, we hope you enjoy it. We hope you get as much out of it as I know we've already started as we start to look into it. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week, church. Bye for now.